So I had an ex interesting experience um, a few months ago um, in which I was put together with another pastor from the Bay Area, and this other pastor was on the extreme side of the liberal end of things, and uh, we had the common task of articulating the Christian view of death, right? So articulating the Christian view of death as opposed to, say, the Muslim view of death or the Hindu view of death or the Buddhist view of death. And so I was, like I said, tasked with this other pastor from San Francisco proper to articulate the Christian view of, of death. And so I, I jumped in and I said, well, um, from my perspective and my understanding, uh, the Christian view of death is that death is an intrusion. Like, this wasn't the way it was originally created, the world. It's an intrusion. It's an alien um, intrusion. That's not how God created the world. And therefore, it's an enemy to be conquered. And by the time you get to the end of the Bible, like, death goes away, right? Um, death is thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which means death dies. Death is no more. Neither is there pain nor sorrow, no mourning anymore, because death is gone. I said, so to me, that's, that's the biblical Christian view of death. And the person that I'm working with said, well... Not all Christians view it that way. I like the interaction. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Now, this particular pastor said, well, some, some Christians that I know adopt a bit more of a, a Buddhist view in which um, you see death is, is, uh, is just a rebirth. It's kind of the cycle of life thing. You're born, you die, you rebirth, and so forth. And it's, it's a very, very positive view of death. And, and I responded, I said, well... Uh, so then, that's not a distinctively Christian view of death, right? That's like kind of a hybrid view of, of death. And I realized at that moment that we were not on the same page. And the reason we weren't on the same page is because we were operating from two very different authority structures, two very different bases of coming to answers regarding those things. And that experience reinforced to me uh, something that I've known for a long time, but something that I... I have, it's, it's been so reinforced that the central, key, critical issue for our time is the issue of authority. And it probably has been the issue of all times. If you're a student of the Reformation, you realize it comes down to an issue of authority back in the 16th century. Like, where do we get our answers from? Um, because we all know that we need authority. A civil government would not work if we had no authority. There would no, be no basis to establish laws, execute laws. Even parenting would be impossible without authority, right? Um, if your kids don't show up at school, guess who gets called on the carpet? The parents do. Why? Because you're an authority over your child. Would we want it the other way around? To give full-blown authority to a two-year-old, five-year-old, or six-year-old? They'd never go to school. So we know that we need authority. You, you can't have a civilized uh, society without authority. It's just everything devolves into anarchy and chaos. So you have to have authority at the same time. Every controversy that we face in our time, from abortion to end-of-life issues to, I mean, I could go on, come down to the issue of authority. Everyone knows we need it. And yet people are conflicted over what is the highest authority and how do we interpret it, right? So it's, it's just a mag, huge, magnificent, massive issue. But it's not just some kind of theoretical issue. It's, it's personal, right? For me, for you, for every human being who's thoughtful. 
How do I come to an understanding based upon some authority as to what constitutes marriage and divorce and human dignity, um, the environment? Um, where, am, where, where, did, where did I come from? Where am I going? How do I get there? Who am I as a human being? These are all deep questions that all of us at some level struggle with. Requiring some authority to have some answers without any authority or ultimate or supreme authority, well, we're left to guesswork. And really, you end up kind of like basing your life on shifting sands of public opinion. The question is, where is supreme ultimate authority found? That is, I think, the critical issue facing all of us, if we take the time to think about it. What I want to say to you today and teach to you from John chapter 17, 6 through 8, is that Jesus is presented to us in keeping with the rest of the Gospel of John as God's divinely authorized revealer of truth. That Jesus Christ is God's ultimate divinely authorized revealer of God and therefore of all reality. That is, he is the supreme, ultimate authority to which everything else must answer. That is the Christian view. So, John chapter 6, sorry, 17, 6 through 8. Let me read it, and then I'm going to break it down under three headings. So here's the text. Maybe. Hold on a second. Oh. Talk amongst yourselves for a moment. Get this back up, or I'm going to have somebody do it from the back. Slide number two, Margaret, would be great. Thank you. I'm just going to have you do it, okay? And I'll just say advance. Awesome. This is called teamwork, you know? When technology breaks down, and it seems to always break down, and I don't know why, oh, I got control again for a moment. Okay, so this is what he writes. This is, uh, again, we've already looked at verses 1 through 5, the first part of his prayer, which focused on the glory of God and the fact that eternal life is knowing him. Verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You'll notice in these verses, these three verses, there's no petition. That is, he's not asking for anything. Verses 1 through 5, he asks for the Father to glorify him. So he's actually asking for things. Here, he's, these are just statements of events that have already been accomplished. That is, he's accomplished his mission. And I think, though it speaks in the past tense, it speaks with anticipation of what's going to happen the next day. And that is, he is going to die on the cross and three days later rise from the grave. So I want to look at these verses under three headings. The revealer, the recipients of that revelation, that is the people who come to know it, and the third one is the necessary response. And I made it easy for you to remember with three R's, all right? The revealer, the recipients, and the response. Beginning with the revealer. 
You'll notice, he says, first statement right out of the gate, he says, I have manifested your name. He's speaking, I think, of the name of Yahweh. I have made you known. That's what it means to manifest. Make known, demonstrate, reveal. I have done this, is what he's saying. And I have given them the words that you gave me. That is, these words, Jesus' teachings, do not originate ultimately with him. He is responsible to convey the words of God himself, right? You guys got that part. Well, the whole of the gospel has been building up to this moment and insistent that Jesus is not simply a bearer of a message, like prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. They were messengers. They were never the message. Jesus is both. He's not just the messenger. He is. All of his teachings originate from the Father. I mean, he's the only one, as John 1 introduces him, not only is the one who was the Word, but it says, No one has ever seen God except God, the one and only who is at his side. He has made him known. That is, Jesus is the only one with firsthand access to who God really is. And he has come as the deliverer of the message and also the message itself. So when you see what he does, his works, his actions, and his character, you're seeing God himself. So Jesus is the full and final, supreme revealer of who God is. And therefore, he is the full and final, supreme authority over everything. That's the whole King of Kings, Lord of Lords thing. But it's also, just to add on to that, because I just want you to feel the weight of just how massive Jesus is in the Bible... That he says this like astounding statement to his adversaries who are asking him about authority and, and questioning his authority. He says, you search the scriptures, that is their Bible, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now he turns it and says, and it is they, that is the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying to them, he's like, you're studying the Bible because you think in them is eternal life. But your Bible is all about me and I'm life. So you're missing the whole point. If you read the Bible, you don't understand I'm the central subject of it. See? So it's just, again, Jesus is, he is the bearer of the word. He is the word itself. And he is the one who is the subject of the whole entire Old Testament. So he is God's word. He is the authoritative expression of God and therefore the supreme authority. Now, we, this is ground I've hit over and over again probably through the years and just a couple weeks ago. So I want to move on, but not without just making it crystal clear. That the Christian understanding of supreme authority rests invariably and unwaveringly on Jesus Christ. Just one more time. The truly Christian understanding of supreme authority rests invariably and unwaveringly on Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, every notion, every understanding, every philosophy, every theoretical view of psychology, and every decision by a court ultimately has to answer to and is subject to the supreme authority of Jesus Christ 
That's anything less than that. Any diminishing of that truth ceases to be Christian and ends up being probably syncretistic, like you wed together two truths, like my friend from San Francisco, or just compromise, or just chaos. And that's what we have to be so clear in our time, who's my authority? Who answers the questions, the deep questions, the big questions? I mean, did you ever stop to think, instead of getting all involved, all, all, I probably shouldn't go here. I'm not going to go there because it'll cut outside my notes. Okay. Okay, so that's the first part. The, the second part is, okay, not everybody recognizes Jesus' supreme authority that he is the word of God. I get it. Of course not. I mean, there are people who say, they, they, they say that Christianity still is the largest in terms of group uh, professing faith in the world. Um, but of course, saying that Jesus is your authority and what actually functions as authority in your life can completely do be two completely different things. You can say Jesus has supreme authority, and yet your wife is the one who really determines what you do, right? Just saying. Functional versus stated authority. Jesus is not just to be the stated authority of your life, but the functional authority of your life. So why don't people embrace it? Well, that too comes out in this passage, and I just want to um, have your attention now. Um, I just want to say that what I'm about to say is going to cause some hackles on your neck to go up. But before you storm out of here thinking that I am completely turning you into a robot, listen to the message all the way through and understand that this is actually in the text, okay? The ones who were recipients of this personal supreme knowledge of God that Jesus came to manifest are people who are given, that is, chosen recipients. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people, a definitive the people, whom you, God the Father, gave me out of the world, that is, out of the sinful, dark world. So you gave me a group of sinners... And they were yours. That is yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have kept your word. They've listened to it. They've accepted it. Like I said, there's there's two sides of this coin, but this text focuses on just one side of the coin. That is, you have a picture here. Jesus' mission is to manifest the greatness of who God is in all of his works and teachings and in the cross and the resurrection and exaltation to a group of people that the Father has given to the Son as a gift. In these verses, we're kind of looking behind the scenes at Disneyland. We talk about the backside of Disneyland nobody ever sees. The front side of Disneyland is where you walk and you buy popcorn at like $20 an ounce. (laughs) Right? Um, This is what's happening behind the scenes, is that there's a group of people known by name, and there's just strong language of sovereignty, election, choosing, particularity in this passage that you just can't escape. I mean, in verse 10, which we're not looking at today, Jesus says, I'm not praying for those of the world, I'm praying for those you've given to me. So according to this text and his prayer, he's, he's manifested God's truth to a particular group of people and they are going to get it. 
They're going to respond to it. Again, a, 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 a massive theme in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John, which, of course, we don't like. We live in a democratic society where it's like, well, can everybody be in? It's like, well, the Gospel call goes out to all. But the mission that Jesus has is to leave no man behind, or woman, or child. And everyone that's part of this people group that has been given to the Son, he will show God to. All right? And just to fortify that a little bit, you'll notice the language is the same. This is John chapter 10, 27, 29. He says, my sheep, a specific group of sheep, not all the sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They hear me. They instantly recognize this is, this is the Messiah. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, this is the group of people, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So not only is this group given to the Son, but they will be eternally protected by the Father and the Son. And later in the prayer that we're looking at, chapter 17, verse 12, he says, part of Jesus' job is not to lose even one. Not a single one. No man left behind. So this is a group of people that Jesus has the mission of saving and giving eternal life to. Like I said, there's another side of the coin, which I'll hit in a second. So this is an inescapable truth in my thinking. When Paul writes in the opening chapters of Ephesians that even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love and said, in love predestined us for adoption in Christ Jesus as sons before the foundation of the world. Those are just things we have to somehow fit into our thinking because they're there. You can't just say, well, I don't like Ephesians 1, so I'm going to cut that out. I don't like John 17 anymore. I'm going to cut that out. Just... No, we're looking at the backside of Disneyland. God is sovereign over the whole process. He's not on his knees pining away for people to go, please, please will you accept me? Nobody's listening to me. I mean, in the Gospel of John, we're told that crowds leave Jesus' teaching in masses. And you don't find Jesus going, man, I'm a failure. No, he knows what his mission is. He knows that his sheep will hear his voice, they will respond, they will come to faith, and he will rescue every last one of them. That is a truth that is in the Gospel of John and in the rest of the Bible, too, that we have to fit into our understanding. Now, I want to pause here to, to, to clarify something. It's not because of that God has a small heart like the Grinch that he chose people. Rather, the problem, the Bible would say, is more on our part. That is, we, in and of ourselves, in our fallen, blind condition, do not have the formal integrity or capacity to actually choose him, and we wouldn't want to. The same theme, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's like... Wait, I thought anybody could come. Well, it's like, no, the Father actually has to be part of the work. Why? Because we have an incapacity to. The problem is on our side. Jesus elaborates even more, John chapter 3, verse 19, and actually, this is the narrator. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They loved. 
Deep down, we love to do what we want to do. And we really don't want to be told otherwise. That's, you know, when you're kids and someone was a little bit too domineering and you say, you're not the boss of me, right? Kids still say that. It's like, it's like an, an eternal quote. You're not the boss of me. Well, that's in every human heart. A husband doesn't want to be told what to do by his wife, and a wife doesn't want to be told what to do by her husband. We don't want to be told what to do by cops when they pull you over for going 10 miles over the speed limit. It's like we just don't want to be told what to do. It's, it's in there. Where do you think that comes from? We have a resistance to authority, right? And where we can, we'll choose authorities or gods that allow us to do what we can do without consequences, Right? Maybe an example here. So I grew up in a fairly conservative home, right? And um, great parents, I, I don't want to, I'm really appreciative now. I wasn't at the time. My music was monitored and so were, was my um, public theater watching. So junior high, 1979, um, Pink Floyd's The Wall came out. Do you remember? I know, all the younger people going, oh, geez, you might as well be talking about Bob Dylan. Um, came out uh, junior high, and, and what kid doesn't want to sing, we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control, right? We're on the playground singing this at school, to the point where the teachers and administration said, can't sing that anymore. They actually did this. If I knew then what I know now, I would have said, First Amendment, right? <laughs> it's my right to free speech. We don't need, you know. <laughs> I just, you know, just, I don't, you don't like to be oppressed, even though, I mean, seriously, we don't need no education? Like, that's the biggest farce I've ever heard. We all need education, right? So, fast forward three years. I'm in high school. The movie comes out, Pink Floyd, The Wall. And all of my friends in high school are going. I wanted to go. Even my Christian friends, Joe and Walt. Mom said, yeah, go ahead and watch it. Rated R. Big problem for my mom and dad. It's like, that was like, it was the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not watch rated R movies. So I lobbied. I argued. I'm like... But Mrs. Ishway is letting Walt and Joe go, and they go to church with me. I want to go see the wall. And it was just this firm, no. And you know, in, in a moment of sheer honesty, in that moment, I wished I had different parents. It's true. Because I felt so constrained. In that moment, I felt like my freedom wasn't honored, or my desires weren't honored. And... So stop there for a second and tell me what would happen if I had a broken home and my mom lived one place who, generally speaking, is more lenient and my father is living in a different place and, generally speaking, is more disciplined. Same scenario, I want to go see the wall. And dad says no. What typically happens? I'm going to go to mom's apartment because I know she's going to let me get what I want and choose authority based upon where your desires will be allowed. You see how that works? By the way, Pink Floyd, The Wall, I never went to see it, but my friend said pretty much he had to be in an altered state of consciousness to actually understand the movie. 
so don't see it. I'm just telling you, don't see it. Do you, but do you see how easy it is to adapt or flex or recreate authority according to our own desires? Jesus says they love darkness more than they do light. And they're going to gravitate towards authorities and, and religion that's going to let them do what they want to do. And that's explicitly what Paul says. Romans chapter 1, right? Although they knew God, like everybody has an innate knowledge of God. They, they, they have to suppress that knowledge. Um, in other words, there, there, <laughs> there are no true, when it comes down to the heart of hearts, true atheists. Because everybody has a conscience and everybody has a deep-seated knowledge that God exists. They may not know exactly who he is, but they know he exists. And they have to suppress that truth, which is why most of the atheists I know are angry. They're angry because they know deep down that it's true. Again, this is Paul. They knew God. They did not honor him as God or give, him, uh, give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish. Their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds. Like, why this exchange? Because God is holy. Because God is absolutely moral. Because God's love for you looks ogre-esque, but it's not. And that's how the world sees God. And it's true, he is holy. He is absolutely morally pure. And anything that stands outside of his morality and his holiness at the end of the day is judged. And our world doesn't like that. That's like having a dad who enforces rules. The other side, of course, is that same dad who enforces the rules and is holy and morally pure is also the dad who sent his son to die for you in your place. That's the part people need to also embrace. The love of God seen next to his absolute stellar morality and justice. Right? That's why, at the end of the day, um, what the fallen human heart needs, let me restate that, what the fallen human heart needs isn't choice. You're like, what? At the end of the day, what the fallen human heart, that is the person who doesn't know God needs, is not choice. Nor does the fallen heart that doesn't know God need the complex cosmological arguments for the existence of God. Nor do they need simple alternatives of this is better than this. What the fallen human heart needs is to be born again. Because only when God gives those the heart, the truth, and you recognize yourself for who you are, I'm fallen, and quite literally, I can't get up. And God says, that's okay, because I've made a way for you to come up by my grace. That's what's needed. Now, again, like I said, I just want to encourage you not to resist the truth, but embrace the truth, because on the one hand, it, it, it is hard that God is sovereign over your salvation. And if you're here today, man, 
Do you realize you've been, you've been chosen by God? You, you, you're not here because you won the lottery. You're here because God knew your name before the foundation of the world, despite the fact that you were a sinner, which means if you know God today, it's not because of you, it's because of God. You're like, wow. And so what that should do to us is create a, a deep sense of gratitude. Like, I don't know why God chose me. That's hidden behind the mystery of his will. I don't know. I just know he did. And I am so grateful because I don't deserve it. That's what it does, right? It should create a sense of confidence. Like, God's mission is going to be accomplished. Absolutely. And you know what? I can't force it to happen. As a preacher, I can't, I can't force my own children to, to trust the Lord. I can't. That's up to him. My job is just to be faithful. But I can be confident that his will will be done. And that I can find rest. There's a tremendous amount of confidence and gratitude and humility that comes with recognizing. And this is part of Jesus' own prayer. The supreme, full revelation of who God is is in Christ Jesus, and he's revealed it to a group of people. And if you're sitting here this, this morning then, and you love the Lord, man, you are so blessed, and so am I. There's no way to calculate or measure the grace and love that has been shown to us by a holy father who the world resists, but opened our hearts to him. All you can do is say, thank you, Lord. One final, I told you there's three categories. The third one is gonna kind of be a counterbalance to the second one. Because there still is a necessary response. And that's also seen in these three verses. It says, they have kept your word in verse 8, they have received and they have believed. They have kept it, they have received it, and they have believed it. And as I, as I mentioned, the, the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whoever, uh, whoever will may come, is true. That's found in the Bible too. Giving people the option of coming to Jesus or not. Now, you might think, you just contradicted yourself. Mm, no, it's just a mystery. Attention, I can't un 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 unwind. I mean, again, early in the Gospel of John, you find this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God. The most famous verse of all times, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever, and when you come to saving faith, you realize, wow, God, my faith in you is a sign that you chose me. I don't know how it works, but I'm just grateful. And it's a belief, church. It's a belief in the gospel which centers on Jesus as the final and full revelation of who God is, and therefore as our highest and ultimate authority. The authority to save the authority to give pardon, forgiveness, and the authority to judge. And the disciples, you know, the motley crew that they were, they fumbled a lot. But they got it. Even before his death and resurrection, there is this moment where crowds are leaving. And if it was a... If Jesus' ministry at the moment of chapter 6 would have been measured by the numbers, he would have been a, an abysmal failure. But they're leaving. His teaching is too tough for them. And so he says to his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom should we go? I love that. Like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you have that same kind of faith that you have found where you can say, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and you're the Holy One of Israel. Like, you are the Supreme One, and so we have nowhere else to go. We're, we're here through it all, and you know what? That's the heart behind someone who's a part of the people of God that the Father gave to the Son. Then that's, that's us. Do you believe and is Christ the authoritative word in your life? That's the question. Not just on the big things, but are we his people saying, all right, Lord, how would you have me live? How have you, what, have we, what have you stated about the world in which we live? What have you stated about marriage and all those things that are a part of everyday life? Help me to live in accordance with that authority. Um, the authority found in, in Jesus. I hope that point this morning is clear. You, we, need to be crystal clear. Crystal clear that the Christian understanding of, the, of supreme authority rests invariably and unwaveringly on Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Lord, we thank you for who you are, being so gracious to us who were a part of the world, and yet you pulled us out of the world. And we thank you for your patience, just the same kind of patience you showed to Peter, James, and John who made their own mistakes and failures, and yet they got it. And Lord, I know that there are many in this room, perhaps most, I hope all, um, who get it. Help us to continue on this path of growth and loyalty, and devotion, and allegiance to the one who gave his life for us. For those who don't know you, Lord, I just pray for an opening of heart. We pray for new birth. We pray for regeneration of the soul so that they too might come to a saving knowledge of how awesome you are. In Christ's name, amen.